0: Welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast, presented to you from Cape Town here in the Western Cape, South Africa. The podcast is presented with a view to providing a platform and voice for built environment professionals and interest groups who are working towards transforming the places and spaces here in South Africa. It's dedicated to the individuals and community groups who are supporting both the formal and informal processes that are shaping our cities and our spaces. It's been a busy month for the Talking Transformation podcast, and regrettably, this will be the only episode for the month of August 2021. The episode itself has been a long time in the making, and it's great to finally be able to put this episode to bed and to get it published. The podcast itself looks at the question of public owned land and its importance within the question of city building and spatial transformation comes at a time when illegal land occupations are increasing and showing very clearly the issues of urbanization and the need not only for accommodation but land on which to build that accommodation. We know that informal settlements have grown from an estimated 300 in 1994 to almost 3,000 in 2020. The issue of land remains an emotive one and this is not the first nor will it be the last time that the podcast will look at the issue. The cost, location and the potential of land are all important considerations in mass housing projects and the processes that go towards supporting their implementation. Land needs to be well-located and able to deliver on a critical mass whilst at the same time being at an affordable price. Frequent criticism of state-sponsored housing and land assembly is that locations have been sacrificed in favor of cheaper land located far from transport and economic opportunities, thus perpetuating sprawl and household costs, particularly in respect of time, money, and opportunity costs, primarily for those low-income household beneficiaries. We've also touched on the issue of legislative reform and the anticipated expropriation of land without compensation for privately owned land at the same time where the state is accused of paralysis and inertia in releasing well-located land for the purposes of housing. Advocacy groups suggest that all spheres of government have collectively been unable to release state-owned land for public beneficiaries and the much-needed housing initiatives. In Cape Town, advocacy groups suggest that five well-located parcels of land owned by national government, Kuhlenburg, Eisterplatz, Youngsfield, Wingsfield, and Denel could deliver more than 100,000 affordable housing units in mixed-use developments, and recognising that these five parcels alone could be enough to meet as much as 50% of Cape Town's estimated housing needs. In June this year, the Development Action Group, along with Endofuna Quasi, the Legal Resources Centre, the Community Organisation Resource Centre, also known as Cork, and the UCT's Professor Vanessa Watson, held a public meeting on the release of three of those parcels of underutilised military-owned land, namely Wingfield, Platt, and Youngsfield. The advocacy groups suggest that these could house in excess of 120,000 people and almost 40,000 homes. In today's episode, we revisit the propositions made at that meeting and hear from three of the participants CEO of DAG, Adi Kumar, who is a friend of the podcast and written frequently about these issues, Chardonnay Glenn, who joins us from Cork, and for the second time in two episodes, Endofuna Akwazi joined the conversation. On this occasion, we're joined by legal researcher Michael Clarke public sector's voice is missing from this episode and as you'll hear, it's something we aim to address in the coming weeks and months. In the meantime, enjoy the episode and the thoughts from these passionate representatives from the NGO sector. And finally, the episode had originally been coordinated with Professor Vanessa Watson. Regrettably, she was unable to join us due to ill health and I want to wish Professor Watson all the very, very best. Our thoughts and best wishes are with you, Vanessa. All the best for the future enjoy the episode. So it's just gone six o'clock on August the 17th and I'm absolutely delighted to be hosting this latest podcast looking specifically at the issue of public land, public owned land and how it can contribute towards spatial transformation and rebuilding our cities. Absolutely delighted to have with us this evening three very well-known guests in respect of their non-governmental or advocacy group approaches. We've got Adi Kumar, the outgoing, soon to be outgoing uh, CEO of the Development Action Group. Welcome,
1: Adi. How are you keeping this evening? I'm very well, Pete. Thanks for having me once more. Fantastic to have you back
0: on the on the podcast. The friend of the podcast, Adi, great to have you back. We've got also in Cape Town, we have Chardonnay Glen. Chardonnay, how are you keeping this evening?
2: Thank you, Pete. I'm good. Thank you.
0: And from endafuna Kwazi, not in Cape Town today, but across in the Eastern Cape. Absolutely delighted to have Michael Clark. Michael, welcome, sir. How are you keeping this evening?
3: Uh, thanks so much for having me pete and i'm thrilled to be here
0: it really is great to have the three of you as i say representing the voice of the advocacy groups talking about an issue which has been a lot a lot of writing a lot of op-eds that we've seen over the last few months and in fact these are issues which are going back we'll we'll talk about uh, decades and so forth so i really wanted to try and get a sense from each of you where is it we, we we're getting this wrong within our towns and cities what more can be done? What is the role of the NGOs to, to assist government in directing it and steering it in the right way? And what are the conversations that we should be having? And I think in the way that we frame this, for anybody listening who is from the public sector, what we've been saying is we really would like to see this as the first of a number of conversations. This is clearly the, the perspective of the NGO, uh, it'd be great if we can do a follow-up where we talk to colleagues from the public sector to respond to some of the issues that you're going to put out there. And perhaps we can even conclude with a sort of round table, uh, some sort of live event where we can discuss some of these going f- further. But Michael, I'm going to start with you. You've written a lot about this. Uh, Endofuna Kwazi obviously out there, is one of the leading advocacy groups here in Cape Town and uh, and broader. Where does this issue of public land find itself in the transformation debate implementation efforts of the different players and I'm thinking that it's not just about obviously the city city of Cape Town, city of Johannesburg, it's really about the provincial the national departments, the state-owned entities so yeah I'm, I'm trying to get a sense from you uh, first up Michael what how, how do we how do we understand this from the very get-go framing the framing the issue? I think
3: one of the biggest issues here, especially, I guess, in the Cape Town context, is just that spatial inequality still exists and is still very much characterizes the city uh, 27 years after the end of apartheid and that 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 inequality very much takes on race and class lines. Um, so residential settlement patterns are very much formed by those race and class lines from apartheid and colonial eras, but have uh, have also almost been exacerbated or entrenched in very uh, unique ways. And I think two contemporary factors really drive that. The one is, is this idea of just a housing affordability crisis um, or or really like a, a really big shortage of affordable housing in well-located areas. And I mean, in that sense, you can just look at the housing demand database and the, the numbers that are on that. Um, something like uh, 600,000 households waiting on the Western Capes Housing database: three hundred and sixty-five thousand people and families waiting on the city's housing database. Um, And those are just the people that would qualify for fully state-subsidized housing. Those aren't the people who would potentially benefit from some kind of other housing assistance, including social housing or higher income brackets. So we're potentially talking to up to to, talking about up to seventy-five percent of the population of the city that can really actually qualify for some form of housing assistance um and 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 this has actually led the city itself to actually say that You know, it will take it up to 70 years to really eradicate this housing backlog. Um, uh, And it's in that context that I think the housing crisis is definitely there's a need for more housing that needs to be delivered at a greater pace. Um, The other issue is just this exclusionary housing market that I think Cape Town has and that Cape Town is particularly badly struck by. I mean, in 2019, the average house cost 1.5 million rand in Cape Town. Um, And about uh, 40% of the housing market was aimed at luxury housing markets, uh, which is houses that cost 1.2 million and up. Uh, In that context, with uh, quite extreme year-to-year on inflation and the property prices, it it just means that most poor and working-class people, most low-income people are just completely excluded from the housing market. And we know that the state-subsidized housing program hasn't really rectified this or has done little to change this or disrupt it mostly because a lot of those greenfields projects are being built in less well-located areas where land is more affordable or land is cheaper and is available. Um, and so that's actually almost a driven or entrenched that kind of spatial inequality, whether adverted, you know, almost inadvertently probably, but still uh, is something that has been actually driving this and making it worse. And it's in this context that, that the public land that is available, that is suited to the development of affordable housing becomes so Uh, incredibly important because it offers a unique opportunity to not only address the housing crisis and provide more affordable homes, but also to really address um, spatial inequality. I think that the COVID-19 context specifically has also added to this debate by driving driving many more people into homelessness. A lot of people lost their jobs, uh, lost their income. Between 2.2 and 3 million people uh, lost their jobs uh, during the early months of COVID, and that that really just uh, just does drive home the point that in this context, this is even more urgent uh, at this point in time.
0: That urgency was picked up during the course of the the lockdown and Development Action Group, along with NU, uh, with the Legal Resources Centre, Cork, that's the Community Organisation Resource Centre, and UCT's uh, Professor Watson came together with a public meeting to talk very directly about three parcels of underutilised military-owned land. Now, Adi, uh, can you tell us a bit about the, the background to what are known as Wingfield, plot and Young's Field and what the quantum uh, of in terms of your projections, your thinking and so forth. Why are these so important within the conversation and how will they start to assist what Michael's very eloquently described as being a sort of the problem statement?
1: I mean, to build on what Michael was saying, Pete, this Fundamentally, the issue about well-located land, and that's what the central debate has to be. Land is generally considered a byproduct or like an afterthought of where the housing is going to be placed, and generally on the periphery of the city, like Michael explained. So these three particular parcels of land are not new. To be honest, they're not just part of the constitutional obligation, but also you know, written up into the first few IDPs that the that the city of Cape Town at that time, the metro municipality had, had written in the late 90s, early 2000s. These three parcels of land are strategically located. They're within 10 kilometers of the CBD, phenomenal access to economic opportunities, transportation, the BRT system, several other amenities, you know, schools, clinics, and all of those kind of things. But not just that, they amount to close to about 660 hectares of land, uh, now you know most cities that 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 understand the land as a finite resource. It's virtually impossible to find like six hundred hectares of land in the inner city that's so well located, that's so that's that's primed for development in that sense. Even on kind of very medium density, somewhat high density projections, I mean sixty-seven thousand homes. I mean, just looking at the backlog for the city of Cape Town, that is a phenomenal number in terms of living in inadequate shelter and poor locations. So I think that's really the heart of this argument that we're making: that there are several challenges with these particular parcels of land, besides it being, you know, controlled by the military, you know, having bulk infrastructure problems, there are environmental concerns, there's some land restitution claims, there's a number of impediments in the place. But yet, despite these impediments, the potential far outweighs any kind of, you know, the, the opportunity costs are too high in this instance. And if this is not the mandate of government to solve these kind of complex problems, then what is? It is the real question. Uh, this is where COCTA and kind of cooperative governance really needs to come in and step in and say, look, these, these parcels of land have a significant role to play in redress. And, and that's how they need to be treated and resolved. Chardonnay,
0: what what did you what did, what did you observe? What what was the feedback that actually got in that public meeting? What were the type of comments that were made and, and who was responding?
2: It was actually a virtual public meeting facilitated by the NGO collective. And I think because this, this has been in the makings for a while, and these three parcels are blend are familiar parcels, and the call has been coming on for decades, actually. The premise of this meeting was to get communities that would benefit from these land parcels release their opinion on the call. Understand exactly what does it mean for the person sitting in their shack that's located in areas as far as Kailicha, or is sitting in backyards in the Matan Garden Village, what would it mean for them if these three land passes are released to hear their story? Um, In attendance in that meeting, it was experts on housing, academia, as I said, ordinary citizens. It was quite a large meeting. There was about over 100 participants we had opinions from beneficiaries who benefited from the, the land release and we had breakaway sessions discussing exactly the call and trying to disseminate the proposals made in the call. We shared important information about these parcels, some that were known by experts, some that were aspects on the call that wasn't really thought about by them. The development potential was shared, as Adi alluded to earlier, and the, the development frameworks. Um, we spoke about them in the context of a neighbourhood aspect of development, the fact that there is constraints but also opportunities. There was um, schematic sketches shared. And through the meeting, we also encouraged our community partners and members of civil society to join the call for government to urgently release D- 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 these stand parcels and to Create that environment that would allow for active citizenry. So, whatever avenue they find themselves in is engaging at a ward level to engage along these lines of like, we heard the call, we understand it, what next, you know? I also think the aim was to further agree on specific actions that can be taken by different partners that will compel government to respond to the call. As of August, as we, we're sitting now, we have received minimum responses from the Department of Public Works, um, one of them being that the release of these land parcels rely in. Or sits in the hands of the Department of Defense because they're making use of these land parcels. We have, um, if I can just mention briefly, that we have looked at mapping out these three parcels, like trying to understand exactly what buildings, what is currently being used for, understanding like what is unused, um, looking at ways in which we can come to some kind of agreement with the state partners. Like, if it is, we could partner. And develop these sites into like maybe subdivide portions that is currently being used by the military I and mean, then still having large tract of lands that could that land that could be used to develop for housing and in our core, we speak about neighborhoods like you know additional clinics primary schools creches social social amenities that fits in a very well integrated neighborhood
0: what, what are typically the uses that you're finding on those portions of land and is it that you're targeting the whole extent of that or is it that you, you think that the, there can be different uses that complement each other and retain some of the existing, trying to get an understanding of what the, the sort of the opportunities are in that regard.
2: So we've managed to map Yangsfield and Ace Supply. We have li- we had little success with Wingsfield because of the military not allowing us access. So we're still waiting for them to respond to that. But like on Yangsfield, there is buildings that's used by the military for administrative purposes. So we weren't made privy to the exact details of the of that. There's like a veil of secrecy. It could be under their custodianship for whatever reason. And there's some buildings that's used for housing by some of the military veterans, but it's not really, it's things that we could overcome. You know, there's always an answer, like perhaps we could use one building for administrative work. And I mean, even the military veterans' houses could be incorporated into the development to be part of an integrated scheme. So it's not that, and sorry, the ASAP portion there is, They say the landing strip is being used. There's a lot of opinion about this, but it is used now and again. But as I said, there is ways to mitigate and develop around that. And you put in, you know, there's always, I would say there's always like a planning response to still ensure that we could use parts of this land for the purposes of housing.
3: I think one of the key things about these three parcels of land is, is what Adi mentioned earlier, that the unique locational advantages and the unique size of these sites really means that it's a unique type of potential that these sites have. And uh, and I think for us, one of the key things here is that land of this quality shouldn't be underused given its potential. Uh, and I think that's something that is is, is really big, uh, big for this whole part of uh, of this claim. I think, uh, another key element here is that if you look at the city's recent draft uh, district plans uh, for the different areas in which these sites uh, actually are uh, located, it's also clear from those district plans that only one of those sites, the Plot sites, has height limitations around it. And that suggests that the other two sites, Wingsfield and Wingsfield and Youngsfield, are, are not being used uh, as, as military airports. Uh, and, and I think, overall, there's, there's the overall question about, do we really need three military sites um, all within 10 kilometers of the CBD? Or is it possible that we could lower the number of military sites that we have Consolidate them into one site and use two of the sites for housing. There are there are different options here, and I think I think that's one of the key things that that's important in this debate.
0: The extent of these land parcels is vast, as as you've both, uh, as all three of you have talked to. So I guess a lot of it is about trying to ha- how do you eat the elephant? You <laughs> know, piece by piece. So in ter- in terms of the piece by piece, Addy, I'm guessing that a lot of the thinking that you uh, have have been trying to advocate for is around. sort of of phased approach, uh, an uh, an implementation approach that really does try and tackle it piece by piece. So anything you'd like to add from that side,
1: Adi? Yeah, I mean, maybe firstly, just to say that it seems ironic that we're actually having this discussion, Pete. Uh, Ironic in the sense, why does civil society have to raise this issue when it's a fundamental foundation of our democracy, which is kind of almost disheartening in some ways, you know, why are we having to put together extensive submissions around parcels of land that are underutilized. And surely this is part of kind of critical kind of thinking. And obviously, I think all the NGOs and people who participated in putting together this submission, you know, very often civil society organizations are treated as naive in terms of what development looks like, you know, that we don't understand the imperatives, we don't understand the legislation, we don't understand the implementation modalities. And so as a result, you know, our submission will always be a bit naive. But I guess what our submission has done in terms of putting forward ideas, trying to make some propositions rather than just complaining that the state hasn't fulfilled its obligation and utilized its legislative instruments appropriately, we've also kind of presented some very concrete ideas in terms of how some of this could be faced. So whether the first phase is really dealing with an with a incremental approach towards housing, ultimately building up to, in the third phase, much greater density that could be built on these particular sites and le- really leveraging these sites for a combination of housing typologies and public amenities. So rather than limiting uh, kind of our imagination to just thinking about you know your BNG you know matchbox style housing, really thinking beyond that logic of what density could look like in these particular neighborhoods. We also kind of suggesting as part of the kind of overall approach towards planning and participation is to use a, you know, a comprehensive kind of approach towards public participation. So rather than making this a social compact with specific communities and outlining these are the people, rather open up this process in a very different way. And I think COVID, like Shatney says, has presented this opportunity to think about these things very differently. So presenting a package of plans, you know, developing a, a a basket of rights that could be awarded to the sites, that could be developed over a 15 or 20 year lifespan. Uh, But things that can also demonstrate that the state is behind this, get things done quickly so that we can see some movements on the ground. And then really one of the emphasis that we put quite a lot is is on management and governance of these lands, which has to be underpinned both by transparency, but also by a partnership based approach, not necessarily, you know, just looking at the state having its mandate and implementing its mandate on on managing some of these things. So that gives just generally a flavor of, of why we think this provides an opportunity, not just for development, but perhaps changing the relationships between government and citizens and governments and communities as well.
0: Michael, if I come to you on the back of what Adi's just sort of, again, put out there in terms of the fundamentals of the conversation, what, why, in your opinion, and I do, yeah, we have to accept this is the advocacy perspective that we're hearing from tonight. Why is it, in your opinion, that the state is not using well-located land, urban land, which it owns to house people, not just in times of the crisis that we've seen in respect of COVID, but prior to that. We've been going at this for 20, 27 years. Where is it that uh, you think that we're just not getting it done? What are the reasons that are coming up that you've tried to address in your engagements with the respective parties?
3: Yeah, um, I think there's a multiplicity of reasons, to be honest. Releasing this land is often uh, quite bureaucratic. There are various processes that uh, that are available, and, and there is a lot of work that has to go into it. But I think, at least from our perspective, one of the very key issues uh, that really has prevented this from happening is that the asset management legislation that exists in terms of which the state holds public land uh, really treats public land as a financial asset. Uh, And that has had a very limited view or limiting view for public officials in terms of how this land could actually be used. And that actually means that uh, a lot of the time, yeah, state officials uh, would rather sell pieces of land or lease them out for uh, certain amounts of money uh, as a way to kind of recoup uh, state investment rather than thinking about how those pieces of land could be used to really achieve more social objectives. Um, The other thing is, uh, I think, uh, a lack of incentives. Um, I think that at government level, there is often an incentive to build the largest number of houses, whatever that may mean. Um, And that often jeopardizes um, things like the location of those houses, um, the quality of those houses, uh, less objectives, objectives like addressing spatial inequality. And I, I mean, you can understand why. There's a lot of political pressure on government officials and politicians to address the housing crisis. Um, and in that context, a lot of them often feel like, let's just provide as many houses as possible uh, on greenfield sites. And so more complicated, more visionary, Projects like this do require a little bit more political will, and ultimately, I think that's one of the one of the big things: is that it requires the political will and the political courage and bravery to really act on a different vision for the city, uh, a, a vision which is much more equal and uh, and more just.
1: Just to add to what Michael was saying, I think part of the issue, and Michael's explained it really well, that that land has been financialized in that sense. You know, it's become an asset management issue rather than a developmental issue. The other piece that's really lacking in our municipal system at the moment is that we have extensive regulations on land use management. We have planning regulations Uh, the various frameworks that govern this, but there's very few metros at the moment, Pete, that have actual policies that deal with acquisition, disposal, and, and assembly of land. And sadly, if land is not planned over the long term and a pipeline created for social housing, for transportation, for public amenities, there's always going to be this gap. I think Buffalo City is perhaps the only one that actually has a land release program, but isn't based on a strategy for acquisition, disposal, assembly, that actually speaks to how land is planned. And without long-term planning, especially around land assets, uh, we will always face this kind of like catching up, whether it's a financial asset or whether it's a developmental and social asset. What's the consequence of not
0: releasing at least one, two of these sites? What happens in terms of spatial form function and the idea of integration and transformation of, of, of
2: space and communities? I want to put my planning hat on and I answer that. We will have sprawled cities. We won't have enough money to invest in infrastructure. But, you know, I'm going to speak on the point of. I'll put on my voice when it comes to the beneficiaries and um, from the community organization, the resource center side, we work closely with communities. And what what really matters is in the city, especially in Cape Town, where you live matters. It determines your access to um, job opportunities, what quality of schools your children go to, the quality of life people have access to. So if we don't release well-located land, we are actually exacerbating poverty in our city. And I feel that it's bad right now and that in itself is a crisis, but it will just get worse. Um, and we cannot continue to ignore this plight. And I think that underpinned by the score is really the reality that government in this form of the city of Cape Town as well as civil society and activists should come together and maybe jointly develop some kind of strategy um, that talks about land release, but also links it to opportunities, especially economic opportunities. We need jobs. People need, um, we cannot continue to perpetuate a wealthy state where people rely on grants um, because, again, it exacerbates poverty.
0: Adi, last year, I'm reminded of the conversation that you and I had uh, around the time of the original lockdown and the National Department of Human Settlements moving very quickly to talk about de-densification of settlements, prioritized settlements across the country. Um, and um, I think we, we talked at that stage around, wasn't that really just an acceleration of the program that we've needed to do for many, many years? I wanted to, to come back to, to that conversation that we had and say, how how do these type of sites assist in not only the, the question around informal settlement upgrading and the program and that land pipeline that Chardonnay's alluded to, but also in terms of this exacerbated issue around the, the the pandemic that we've been dealing with and continue to do so and really saying look, the time for talk is long over we've got to get a situation whereby there is that pipeline, it's funded, it's resourced, it has the materials and the construction capacity to build. So yeah, I'm trying to get a sense from you uh, as, as to how do you think that debate that we had last year has changed, if at all? And how do these sort of land portions assist in constructing a really progressive and implementation agenda?
1: It's a tough question, Pete. Uh, but I mean, the de-densification debate, my kind of uh, hunch is that it was a it was knee jerk reaction to the imminent crisis that we were going to see as a result of the pandemic, particularly in informal settlements. It wasn't necessarily well thought through, you know, the urgency was there, the The resources were made available to make this happen. But the, the planning behind it, the thinking behind it hadn't fully been developed. And as a result, that debate kind of materialized but in some ways is kind of fizzled away again as a result of lack of political will and many other issues that kind of combined with it like how do you plan land in such uh, you know at such speed and at such pace but i guess the bottom line that you're kind of alluding to is has has COVID shifted many debates in the housing space you know that's the fundamental thing that we are trying to answer And so our expectation was, you know, this reality is going to leapfrog us. You know, the the pandemic and the crisis that follows is going to leapfrog us into this reality where things are going to move. We're going to see housing developments come up, land being released unfortunately i my kind of view from dag's perspective is that actually we're in a little bit of a policy flux you know densification comes in has a sudden and slow and painful death we don't know what happened to it then comes this rapid land release program we're not sure whether it's about resource allocation we're not sure whether it's about policy shifts what does it mean in the in the in the space of this new informal settlement upgrading grant so there's a lot of ambivalence at the moment and Kind of my impression is that many of the business plans that metros are submitting are are very confusing uh, at the moment because they're not sure what the policy intent is. and part of this policy intent that needs to respond to is the resource crisis that we're going to have in the next decade. The COVID crisis with the economic losses and the job losses has created an environment where there just isn't enough money to deal with the housing program as it currently stands. And that new reality hasn't been constructed. We haven't spent enough time to understand what exactly the housing program is going to look like and what does it mean in terms of you know, the right to housing, the delivery of housing, how do we deliver more when we have lot less resources and the demand is growing, we're urbanizing at a, at a at a rate that's unprecedented. So I think these are the kind of things that we're trying to contend with, but it requires some kind of collective thinking. It doesn't require you know, the siloed approach where land deals with land and public works deals with land and the Department of Human Settlements deals with the issues of housing. It requires a almost like a catastrophic and, you know, change in approach that needs to happen. And that needs to put kind of affordable housing, location, land at the center of this thing. And again, referring back to Michael's original point, affordability is key here. That has to be the central driving factor along with location. I guess a lot of these
0: questions uh, have been around for the last almost three decades around how do we transition? What is that transition? How is it resourced? and michael i'm coming to you now to really say well what more needs to be done i mean we don't have a magic wand that we can wave we know the coffers are bare we know that the, the 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 economic downturn doesn't make for a particularly healthy future in terms of grant funding and making you know innovation um within the within the financial space easy so what is it that can be done do you think michael um I want to hear from you what you think we can do within the sort of collective space between the public and the private sector, uh, to, to try and be more responsive than has arguably been the case for for many years now.
3: I think it is going to be harder to do, I guess, do more with with less, but but I think one of the key things is that is why our interventions have to be much more strategic and much, uh, much better thought out. And this is actually one of the things that this submission was trying to do. Um, We specifically uh, not only identified how these sites could be developed, but also tried to identify what legal mechanisms exist in existing policies and laws that would actually be able to facilitate or allow um, either the president, uh, the minister of public works, or the minister of human settlements, to actually release these sites, um, uh, and of course, this comes this comes in the context of the legal obligation in our constitution as well there is a legal duty uh, not only to provide houses but also to address spatial inequality and that's clear from section 255 of the constitution which places an obligation on the state at all levels to ensure that citizens progressively gain access to land on an equitable basis and in Section 26, which says that everyone has the right to adequate housing. Um, and when you read those two rights together, and this, this comes from the, the High Court case and that Adunisi case, which is the case about the sale of the Tafelberg site uh, that was decided uh, late last year, those rights together really create um, an obligation to actually urgently address. The legacy of a spatial uh, apartheid and spatial injustice, um, and and that's something that I don't think we've heard from the legal perspective yet, um, but but it comes through very clearly. So there's there's this legal obligation not only just to provide houses, but actually to be aware of the location of those houses. It's not enough to just build houses in really badly located areas. That obligation does require us to actually put time and energy and effort into making sure that the houses that are created are well located. And this is also clear from Spluma. I mean, uh, Spluma's principles underlie things like spatial justice, uh, spatial sustainability, spatial efficiency. We can't keep building at the densities that we have been building at uh, and creating urban sprawl. And I think that that's also why, I think partially why, (laughs) I guess I'm a little bit uh, shocked by the inaction on these things uh, because the reality is, is that existing laws and policies create multiple different ways for the state to either transfer these uh, pieces of land uh, or to acquire them through the Housing Act and existing housing programs, or to even expropriate them in terms of the Housing Act Section uh, 9 of the Housing Act, or even through the Expropriation Act or the new Expropriation Bill. These options are out there, they really are available to the state. Uh, At different levels, even to the Housing Development Agency, um, which if you read the Housing Development Agency Act and the Infrastructure Act together, there are very clear ways in which you can transfer that land. The question is, like, if we have these legal mechanisms available, how can we use them in a way that would make sure that we would actually lessen the burden on the fiscus rather than purchasing land for the same
2: same purposes yeah i just want to add to mike's point back like the legal mechan- mechanisms are quite broad and um, there's lots of frameworks that make provision for the state to take ownership of these planned parcels but i think that as much as our policies are quite comprehensive and they um quite clear at all we always fall short at the implementation thereof. the the release of these land parcels actually don't just rely on one department to, you know, realize these, these forces to be released and developed. It requires a collaborative approach by different departments. Um, and I think that because of the way that government is set up, um, they're quite used to working in silos. And this has been a critique of a bureaucracy, I mean, since I was a student. And I think that we actually need perhaps one department to kind of anchor this like some like catalytic way to just unlock all other departments to to fall in you know to make sure that the land is not just released but it's actually developed within a reasonable time it's quite important.
0: Adi in, in a number you you've put out a number of op-eds over this last few few months um, and specifically one of the things that you picked up on was this idea of a shift in the thinking a shift is needed you talked about the shifting from a culture of fear and apathy to a culture of creativity, productivity, and participation, which really builds very strongly on what both Michael and Chardonnay have been talking about. Can you maybe just expand on on that as sort of not not a not a panacea, not a silver bullet, but certainly a paradigm shift in the way that the public sector is going about its business?
1: Yeah, for all my sins, I have spent some time with uh, municipal officials, uh, Pete and. To be honest, it's a, it's, a, it's a bit depressing, you know, to see how quickly any form of creativity and inspiration gets, uh, you know, literally sucked out of your body as soon as people join the public sector. You know, we've worked with a number of people who come from civil society, who enter public service, and they enter public service because they believe that the state has the, the mandate and the resources to bring about the change. And really, I think going back to what you were asking earlier, you know, at this particular moment, post COVID, we want a state that's responsive, a state that is able to adapt to the changing circumstances, to different protocols, to different economic conditions, to different demands, to different rates of urbanization, all of those kinds of things, and, and deliver on its mandate still. And we understand that it's not a perfect situation that you know we don't have the right kind of resources available to us and several different kinds of uh, things that set us back. But instead of making the state responsive, what what I've observed very often is that politicians feel that the administration must carry the political mandate, must carry forward the political policies and must prioritize the communities that the politicians feel that it's right. And when things don't go as planned, based on various regulatory frameworks and so on, the immediate kind of sense is to centralize power in these municipalities. So very often we notice and it's not just a cape Town thing it's it's pretty much across the country there's a there's a paralysis in the municipality where decisions are held by a select few people and that really stifles any kind of decision making, any kind of uh, you know propulsion to make things happen. I mean many years ago I was involved in a service delivery project. I might have mentioned this to you earlier. it took 18 months to appoint a contractor. Uh, for a site that informal settlement that required, you know, 20 toilets to be delivered. Uh, It was shameful. It was like, why is this happening? Why is government not able to respond to something as simple, which is within its mandate, it has the resources, is not able to overcome certain aspects of how it needs to do. So this culture in, in public service is definitely at the core of this thing, you know, the lack of trust, the inability to kind of have a conversation, to have a dialogue just engage on issues and and admit that government doesn't have the answers you know uh, you go to community meetings and very often people government officials will remind you no 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 this is not your mandate this is our mandate we lead public participation we decide what needs to happen and and you say well you know you're appointed to lead the public's mandate <laughs> this is not your mandate this is the public's mandate and so I think that's the culture that we're trying to change. And to be honest, if I had one wish to change anything, I would change the culture of the public service to become much more responsive and to take this much more seriously.
2: I just want to actually come in. I think it's important what Adi mentioned before, that um, a public servant is... You mandate this with the this for the public, and what what we try to do with the school is really try and put a face to the call, put a voice to the call, and the face and the voice is the people living in communities, that's living in informal settlements, that's living in backyards. That really we we talk about them because we try and represent them as best we can, but we are not them. So we've done a series of videos. Um, And the the tagline is, um, if I live closer to, and if I live closer to the city, what would this mean for me? And the one story is about a man that lives in Kailiche and he speaks about being unemployed and he speaks about the fact that he has to walk far distances to, to access services, to access um, public transport. Um, and the other is a story about a woman that's in a transitional housing project that's close to the city and what does it meant for her life. And I think these these stories are important because it actually frames the call and puts a face to it. It adds a voice. And it also allows whoever's viewing it from a policymaker and decision-making um, position to see that back by the score, there is thousands of these people. Thus, these videos will be released in the public realm shortly. And we're hoping that it creates a sense of urgency because the longer we wait, the worse situation gets on the ground.
0: Thanks for that, Chardonnay. Michael, from your side, what are you, was it you guys are busy with? Where can people find out more? You can find out more on all of our,
3: all of the organizations that have, were part of the submissions uh, social media pages. So our Facebooks, our Twitters, our Instagrams. And yes, there'll be many more publications and reports coming out of this as well as as uh, as well as op-eds uh, and videos. But yeah, there's also always a lot of research about how public land is being used. Um, Ndifuna quasi has various research reports out uh, on exactly this specifically looking at yeah at how the city has been using the land that it has and leasing that land out uh, at relatively low amounts rather than using this for key social uh, so, social function that this land really should be performing so there's there's a wealth of materials I think from from all of the organizations that are part of this uh, that that you can go and have a look at uh, and find out more. I think one thing that that is most clear to me about this is that public land is is really low hanging fruit here um it's it's an easy way to address a very complicated crisis. um, And it's a simple way to open up well located housing. And, and in that sense, it's, it's in many ways, a little bit of a no brainer. And so, so yeah, I think there's an enormous potential with unlocking public land.
0: Moving to yourself, Adi, and before I ask you to tell us about where you can find out more about Development Action Group, I just wanted to take this opportunity on behalf of the podcast. Uh, a, for all the times that you've assisted in facilitating the conversations and prompted us to say you should think about this, Pete, stick it on as a, as a podcast episode, for always making the time. But also within my my own career and my own time here in Cape Town, you've made access to DAG and to your fellow advocacy groups very, very easy for me. Uh, and I can't thank you enough. And I know a lot of the people who listen to this podcast really going to miss you in your role as the CEO of of DAG. Uh, I want to take this opportunity to, from my absolute bottom of my heart, thank you and wish you the very, very best for your next ventures. Uh, Make no mistake, this is not the last podcast you and I will do. (laughs) I'm coming to find you and we're going to do it more and more. Um, But no, seriously, thank you very much. And this is just a great way to say, I know you're going to tell us what, what DAG are doing, but you and I both know that in the next few weeks, unfortunately, you're going to be uh, detached and you're going on a new adventure. All the very best, Adi.
1: Thanks, Pete. Uh, maybe you're going to offer me a job sitting next to you and and, and learn the ropes of the public service. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think maybe just a quick comment from my side. I I think we, we also... These, the collective organizations have had quite a lot of discussions that these, these three parcels of land are not a silver bullet. We know that this the the complex problem that we're dealing with requires intervention at all levels. We cannot do this without a comprehensive response to informal settlement upgrading and resolving those issues, which is an issue of land, but it's also an issue of planning and housing. We have to deal with the inner city social housing issue. There's just no way around it. And that just has to be expedited without any. And I think NU just had a public meeting recently on highlighting what happened with the 11 sites. So I think there's there's multiple uh, almost responses that need to happen simultaneously, but this just happens to be one of those that could really change the game. It could tilt the balance in a way that, that we haven't seen in the city before. It requires just, it'll be a different reality. And then we can talk about, you know, the 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 finite nature of land in the city and what else needs to be developed, what needs to be prepared in the future, but not before the current, vacant, underutilized land had been utilized for the purpose that it's meant for. Uh, Yeah, and in terms of more information, our website, dag.org.za and our social media platforms, along with all our partners, uh, NU, Cork, uh, you know, Vanessa Watson's uh, UCT page, and uh, Legal Resource Center, Uh, all those resources are available there. Thanks, Pete.
0: Thanks to the three of you. Uh, I really appreciate you taking an hour of your time uh, out of hours uh, when your families need you, need you most. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out. Uh, Most importantly, as always, please stay safe. Uh, Safe travels, uh, Michael, back from the East into the Western Cape. And uh, we look forward to picking this conversation up, I say. The idea is there to try and expand this to next time talk to the public sector hopefully there'll be response to this discussion and then coming together uh, the respective parties to have a an engagement around this that's certainly my ambition let's see if we can work on that for the meantime colleagues all the very best have a safe evening see you soon thanks, thanks
1: Steve. appreciate your time thanks Chardonnay. thanks michael
0: we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Talking Transformation podcast. Please engage with us and let us know your thoughts on this episode. You can do so via the Anchor podcast platform. There's a voice message function available via the app. You can also follow us on Twitter via Talking Transfo and the number one. So Talking Transfo One. Our theme music is kindly made available by Tribal Need. Find out about the music, the street art shows here in Cape Town and Europe via tribalneed.com.